Hi there, I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, your host for Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to explore some interesting connections between the composition of the human gut microbiome and how the consumption of fermented foods influences this composition. I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Flax. He's one of the authors of a new study entitled On Pickles, Biological and Sociocultural Links Between Fermented Foods and the Human Gut Microbiome. And this paper was recently published in the Journal of Ethnobiology and Ethnomedicine. Dr. Flax researches food and agriculture systems, exploring genetically modified crops, heirloom seeds, and our own microbiomes. He's currently an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, where he teaches introductory courses in social science and graduate seminars in methods and environmental social science. His work among farmers in North America, the Balkans, and South India investigates ecological knowledge and technological changes in agricultural systems, spanning the Cleveland urban gardens and Indian genetically modified cotton. Andrew's work has been recognized by seven international awards, including most recently the Political Ecology Society's Eric Wolf Prize and the International Convention of Asia Scholars Book Prize. Outside of academia, he's also an avid cook, cyclist, and musician. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Andrew. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, let's jump right into this really fascinating paper. I mean, it caught my attention when I was looking through some of the recent literature in the field of ethnobiology. And maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about the types of questions that you were seeking to answer and how you set the study up. Like all great science, this paper began uh, as a wonderful conversation with my co-author, Dr. Joseph Orkin, at a deli. And we were talking about all of our favorite foods, uh, eating pickles and pastrami sandwiches, as you want to do there, and thinking a lot about the kinds of research that we were doing. Joe is a geneticist. I'm a cultural anthropologist who studies agriculture. And we got to talking about all kinds of fermented foods that we had been seeing. I grew up and Joe grew up eating kosher dill, uh, lactobacillus fermented pickles by our grandmothers. But in my work in India, uh, researching genetically modified cotton fields, I would eat a bowl of fresh homemade yogurt basically every day, along with some other kinds of uh, pickled mangoes and limes and spicy things. Uh, Joe working in uh, southeast China, in um, Yunnan and Kun Kunming, would be eating all manner of fermented vegetables, uh, things that are cabbagey, things like pautsai, which are full of other kinds of fermented vegetables. Uh, all of us as proper field workers have had all kinds of fantastic homebrew over the years. And we're thinking about this and talking about our favorite foods and wondering what kinds of deeper questions there might be in that, including, you know, for me as an anthropologist, as someone who studies agriculture, okay, so how does this food tradition and this cultural question of what tastes good Fermented foods are famously not subtle foods. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do how do all those questions around taste translate into things that I study every day, like agricultural biodiversity or knowledge and practice in the field? Uh, and on a genetic level, how might that translate even further that cultural question into something like our own bodies, our own microbiome compositions, or 
the astounding diversity of life that exists in different kinds of fermented foods. And so the, the questions that really permeated throughout all of this ended up being, how do these cultural values through our food traditions or through food practices that we're really just newly discovering or rediscovering, especially in a context like North America, uh, where a lot of indigenous knowledge has been destroyed through acts of genocide or assimilation. Um, in the acts of rediscovering that, how are we literally shaping ourselves? How are we combining these elements of genetic truth and cultural heritage? Uh, what better way to study that than by looking at the, the qualitative practices that go into making things like sauerkraut and pickles and how they link up with the biological outcomes that we have in our own bodies. That's great. Yeah, and and along that theme, when you think about the cultural practices, you went to an interesting festival um, for this. Tell us a bit about that festival and how you how you conducted this the survey. Yeah, so uh, when you're beginning to go and look into fermented foods, nine out of ten people, ourselves included, stumble across the work of. Sander Katz. Uh, and so we were lucky enough to be with uh, this this scholar in his own right, although I don't know that he would call himself one, uh, but a food activist, a food revivalist, someone who's just really invested in fermented food and all of its possibilities. Uh, the anthropologist Heather Paxson, I think, once called him the high priest of fermented foods, which sounds about right. And he yeah. holds these, these great workshops uh, on sliding scales. So um, while this can be a, a like a high income, um, fancy kind of affair, if you're also just really invested in making fermented foods and you've got a great story and you don't have the the means economically to 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 get there, um, there's a way that there are scholarships that allow you to go to these. So um, to plug his work a little bit, yeah, uh, we wrote to him and said, hi, we're interested in this project. We've got some funding. We'd love to attend your workshop to talk with people about their experience with the foods, including yourself, and then to take biological samples of the fermented foods. Oh, and also, because we're interested in how those fermented food bacterial assemblages then translate into the human body, we would love to ask your people very politely and gently, including yourself, including ourselves, uh, if you wouldn't mind collecting stool samples for the day you arrive on that at this workshop and then every day through and then a week after to see how our bodies change as a result of these mm -hmm. things that we're eating. Luckily enough for us, uh, uh, most of the people who were there, everybody agreed to talk to us and most of the people who were there agreed to, to give us these stool samples. So we've got this moving picture snapshot of what's alive in a fermented food and what changes are occurring in all these different people's uh, gut microbiomes as a result of that, which is really one of the best ways that you can answer that question. How does eating this food change your, change your body's composition? Collecting the fermented food samples also allowed us to ask this interesting kind of question, which we'd been thinking about. Um, a fermented food, if we think about it as ecologists, Mm -hmm. That's a pretty extreme environment. It's full of salt. It's full of acid. Salt and acid kill a lot of living things. Part of what you're doing, um, if you think about this as an agricultural scholar, when you're making fermented food, 
is you're creating an extreme environment where only certain kinds of life can live. Uh, I'm used to seeing that in say genetically modified cotton fields where you're creating a monoculture. That's an extreme environment where you're killing everything else off that isn't say genetically modified cotton in India uh, or in the other places where it grows. But you're also doing that when you're making a fermented food, when you're making sauerkraut. It's salty, that kills a lot of the other stuff that would live there. You're promoting a certain kind of life in that area. We wanted to know, is my sauerkraut different from yours? Mm -hmm. And is my sauerkraut different from somebody else who maybe has a different kind of fermentation tradition? Um, there are all kinds of great fermented food practices all around the world, but there might be some convergence there because these are all similar environments. We see ecologically in plant habitats, right? Similar ecotopes have similar uh, places where plants are living. We found that there's similarities. So just as we would see a rainforest in one area might have a similar kind of plant makeup as a rainforest in another place, a desert in one area might have a similar kind of convergently evolved uh, life in that area than another. But they've got their differences. And that was exactly what we found as well on these different homemade sauerkrauts and homemade other fermented foods, uh, kind of clustering around all the vegetable ferments look similar, but still uh, you can tell mine is genetically, microbiologically distinct from mm. yours. And that difference stems from all of the innumerable variables of real yes. life. Yeah. I picked this cabbage later. I, I touched it differently. I My kitchen's a little bit differently shaped than yours microbiologically. I added coriander and you didn't. All these kinds of things that we think of as cultural taste have a profound impact on the resulting microbiological profiles, which for us is super exciting. That's amazing. I've, I, um, I had an opportunity uh, pre-pandemic to actually attend one of Sandor's workshops they had here in Atlanta with some other um, really amazing fermenters like Kirsten Schoke as well. And it was so much fun. We didn't have to give poop samples <laughs> for this workshop, but I think that was amazing that you were able to make this ask and that they're receptive to really get that understanding of, of how, how these are um, transformed in the body. I guess one thing that could help bring a little bit more clarity for the audience is, can you walk us through, just to remind us, you know, where do the microbes that make up this community within the ferment, where do those originate from? Are they adding external microbes or is this something that's just naturally found in the plants that is selected for in these extreme environments? So that's a great question and it gets us into the differences between my or yours or granny's homemade pickles mm -hmm. versus what we might buy at the store. Um, all plants, all living things, really, uh, have got bacteria on them. Mm -hmm. And and all plants have got lactobacillus naturally occurring, what uh, a microbiologist would call autochthonous bacteria. So bacteria that's already there, not stuff that you added into it. That is what is being over time selected for. So you're, you're culling from this already there bacterial community when you're making a homemade fermented food because certain kinds of bacteria, some of which ends up being really good for our gut health, especially that in the genus Lactobacillus. That stuff loves these high acidity, high salt environments, those extreme environments. Other kinds of bacteria, like some that might be harmful, like E. coli or Listeria, that actually does really poorly in these high acidity, high salt 
environments. And so that's part of the reason that fermentation for hundreds, thousands of years has been used as a preservative. It's a really great way, and salting, curing, uh, it's a really great way of removing moisture where certain kinds of bacteria that might be harmful might live, and also changing that ecology to make it harmful for that those harmful bacteria um, that might make us sick, that can't survive in the high salinity, high acidity kinds of environments. That's a little bit different than when you buy yogurt or pickles or sauerkraut at the store. So first off, a lot of those are not made through lactobacillus fermentation. A lot of those are made through vinegar, uh, which is acetic acid. So it's a little bit different than lactic acid. If you're really attuned to it, you can probably taste the difference there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also setting something in acid rather than having that acid be created over a couple of days. So it's a different process by which that extreme environment is made. A lot of those commercially sold fermented foods are also regulated by the food safety apparatus that we have in this country and and anywhere uh, where you have federal regulations on food products. And that means that you have to say with some degree of certainty what's alive in your product. You can't just sell stuff that says it's alive, it's good for you, trust me. Uh, we're not allowed to do that. And I, so, I do that all the time. I tell my friends, look, I made this. It's alive. It's great. Eat it. Right. Well, we can do that. We can pass that on. Right. And I can take yeah. it from you because I trust you. I, while I love, uh, the Bubby's corporation that makes my favorite brand of commercial pickles. Um, I don't know that I necessarily trust them when they say it's fine. Don't worry about what's in here. You can take it. Um, one of the one of the serious things you learn in a food safety class is, of course, that all of these food safety laws, annoying though they might be for like Andrew making sauerkraut um, in, a, in a mason jar at his house, uh, all those laws that might be annoying for me in my little kitchen, they're all written in response, at least in the mm. United States, to some kind of food outbreak or some kind of dangerous uh, situation. So all of these food laws do exist for our commercial um, corporatized industrial food system, which has all kinds of problems on its own, but these laws exist so that we can sell food safely within that not always so great system, yeah. uh, which is different from the foods that we might give out as gifts. So that those commercial foods are often sterilized, pasteurized, made to be a blank slate, and then they're re-inoculated with other kinds of uh, bacteria so that we can say with a great degree of certainty, these specific strains are definitely in there. They didn't just happen to be in there or happen to to grow because they were autochthonously already there. We put them there. We know in what concentrations they are, uh, and we know that they're they're healthy or that these claims have been verified by some kind of regulatory agency. So a lot of ferment, home fermented foods, or uh, commercially fermented foods rather, have got far less diversity of microorganisms than what we observed in our analysis of these uh, homemade ferments because they haven't been pasteurized and then re-inoculated. The one exception to that is yogurt, which is a relatively quick ferment. And the way that you make yogurt is you boil the hell out of milk for a couple of minutes, and then you backslop, that's the technical term, uh, you, you backslop some of your old culture into it, and it goes and grows into that uh, blank canvas, essentially. So that's another example of how a cultural practice, a set of 
knowledges and tastes go then to make an, an ecological landscape. That's great. Well, let's let's talk about the ecological landscape from a perspective of of the microbiota. Um, so you looked at different types of fermented products. Did you see large differences in the types of microbes that were present, for example, in a sauerkraut versus maybe a pickled chili pepper? Or I don't maybe tell us about some of the different products you looked at and how similar or different um, were they? Or are they all kind of a mix of lactobacillus in the end? What's exciting is that the different fermented types uh, were all kind of in the same universe, but they all had their own little differences. But you could clearly distinguish, this is the microbiological profile of fermented veggies versus mm -hmm. this is the microbiological profile of milk products mm -hmm. versus this is the microbiological profile of something a little bit more complicated like uh, a mold product like mm -hmm. tempeh uh, or miso or koji, these, these fermented bean products. Um, what's exciting about that is that, back to our, our question, is my sauerkraut biologically distinct from yours? The answer is yes, but they're in the same world. They're in the same mm -hmm. universe. They've got similar profiles. Uh, what's healthy in there are a lot of those lactobacillus, and lactobacillus cuts across a lot of these, although it's not in um, everything that we looked at because of the different ecologies that we're making. But there's so much other stuff going on in there. And from what we know about the complexity of an ecological system, that diversity uh, can help to fill all kinds of fun on the microbial level ecological niches that might result in overall biological health or biological illness uh, within your gut or some kind of reshaping of it uh, if if your gut was particularly non-diverse to begin with. Like say you just had a, a course of antibiotics because mm -hmm. um, you had some kind of infection. Um, eating these foods can be one efficient way to get some of that biological diversity back, at least on the on the short term based on what we've looked at, because we can see that your your biological profile is changing in response to this. We, there were 25 um, different microbes uh, bacterial strains that we saw clearly present in the fermented foods, not present before people, in the same numbers at least, not present before people started eating all these foods and then they became present in these stool samples. So that to us now it's not a clinical trial, so we can't say yes, X caused Y, mm -hmm. but it's pretty clear context for us to say that these foods are clearly having some kind of impact since this is something that we saw throughout our, our different individuals. A next step, a way to um, test that hypothesis would, of course, to do this would be to do this in a clinical trial. However, one problem with that is that it takes out all that other real world stuff that is so important for us. Um, we would call all the confusion of the meals that people ate and the other things that they were doing day to day and how often they washed their hands, those would all be confounds in a medical trial. Mm -hmm. But in our study, that's just life. That's what just we were life, here yeah. to yeah. look at. Uh, well, so this was this way of, of, of looking at that diversity and seeing how it translated into human outcomes. That's, that's really interesting and a great point because the human diet is so varied. And my guess is that at such a workshop, 
you're not just going to be eating sauerkraut. You're going to be trying lots of different fermented foods that maybe some of the um, participants have never tried before um, as well, which would be, you know, maybe pop up in that study. Absolutely. Um, after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to your, back to your question about the differences there, um, it, the, the paper is open access. So anyone who's curious can go check it out uh, without the burden of a paywall. Um, I'm cheating a little bit and looking over at this other screen where we've got the pictures up of the different bacterial oh. profiles. Um, this is figure two. Basically, when you look at these different uh, these different profiles of tempeh, sugared vegetables, dairy, koji, salted veggies, greens, grains, and beans, you see these pretty clear different uh, worlds, different mm. microbial ecologies for these different um, these different foods that are out there, which is exactly what we should expect to see if we t- if we put on our ecology hats, if we put on our um, our, our ethnobiology uh, ways of looking at the world, because these are all distinct, slightly different habitats. Of course, they're going to have slightly different uh, bacterial profiles. It's not what we would see in the homogenization of a commercially regulated, um, live fermented or re-inoculated food product, because of course, this is far more difficult to regulate uh, and to monitor under the kinds of laws that we have right now, which is a, that's a political question rather than a biological question. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, and I guess in a way, the food, whether it be the dairy or different vegetables, let's say it's cabbage or carrots or the different seasonings, all those in some ways are either, well, the, the base food is feeding the microorganisms. So it's like, do they like to eat? the cabbage, I guess, or do they like, like, you know, do they like to take those molecules and break them down and release that, you know, that nice uh, lactic acid? Um, And you have in in your paper an example of sugared vegetables. So when you say sugared vegetables, are you talking about like sugar beets or is there sugar actually being added to these ferments? These are sugar kicked ferments. So um, what we're looking at there is uh, a beverage called sweet potato fly. And ah. it's, it's changing as it goes along. Uh, sweet potato fly is like a Caribbean uh, soda. But if you've ever made ginger beer, uh, which mm. you totally should if you yeah. haven't, because it's so easy and so delicious. Uh, it's a similar project. You you, you add in some sugar. Uh, you add in your raw, um, preferably organic, because that means that it hasn't been irradiated. So it's going to have those autochthonous bacteria on it. Uh, you add in that, that product, your, whether it's... Uh, sweet potato or whether it's ginger you add in some lemon juice or some nice citric acid to quicken that uh, extreme environment and also because it tastes good and then you wait a couple of days and you've got this lovely delicious bubbling uh, concoction at the end of that and you can actually see on that um, sugared vegetable uh, quality on that sugared vegetable uh, chart that we have here what we were able to do is is sample that sugared the microbiological profile of this over time so you can mm. see how it changes, how that ecology and therefore the stuff that's living in there, um, that, that habitat is changing over time and, and moving increasingly towards a lactobacillus environment, which is that sour, delicious uh, fermented mm. soda taste that we love, that we all love. Yeah. Well, that's that's an interesting point, too. And I guess when you're just getting started with fermentation, a lot of the advice I got early on was, well, 
just taste it and you'll kind of know when it's that right level of sour. So in a way we're using our own senses, our sense of smell, our sense of taste, our also our sight um, to really determine at what point is, is the ferment really ready. Well, I love I love sharing recipes and examples of, of easy things for people to, to try at home. Um, I know that you just mentioned ginger, making your own ginger ferment. Can you can you share with the audience how that how that works? I have some ginger root here at home, so I might try it today. Oh, yeah. solid. Um, so for uh, the the best recipe, the one that I use uh, comes from Sandra Katz's book, The Art of Fermentation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to try and remember it off the top of my head, but you can fact check this later. Uh, yeah, if you need yeah. To. So um, you take a, a grated ginger root, put that into a gallon of water, add about a cup of lemon juice, add about a cup of sugar, and let that be for a couple of days in a warm environment. And the fermentation will take root. It's really very simple and very straightforward. And uh, for a lot of people who have been raised in a highly regulated uh, industrial food system, as probably many of your listeners have been, I myself have been, uh, it's empowering and quite a lot of fun to take yeah. control of, of your food in this way and to really be you know, the, the progenitor of this kind of thing. Um, some of the my favorite anthropological, cultural anthropology work on fermented food looks at this aspect of uh, fermented foods as the gift, which mm -hmm. and gifts are this foundational concept in anthropology, because uh, of course there's no such thing as like a free gift. Gifts always take on some kind of obligation or they instill some kind of relationship with people, and fermentation and the sharing of cultures, uh, bacterial cultures, is a great way to put that gift idea into action in. Our, our social cultures to say here I'm giving you this this is my particular blend of yogurt or or ginger beer um, you can taste you know me <laughs> my handiwork in there <laughs> and here again it's there's a qualitative part of that which I think is really important because it allows us to pay attention to the right kinds of questions when we ask a scientific research question uh, but there's also we've got a quantitative way to say exactly how much of me. <laughs> is in that and how much of my own distinction and, and cultural practice is based in there. A lot of these techniques are methods that were extremely common all around the world for a long time. And in fact, we're the weird ones nowadays, not knowing how to do this and not doing a lot of this action. So it's a lot of fun to, to rediscover that and to embrace the knowledge keepers who kept us alive um, yeah. and, and kept us moving forward. No, that's, that's such a great point. And I think, you know, especially during the period, especially in the early days of the pandemic, um, I know just from social media posts that people really started to get back to their roots, so to speak, with, with fermentation and sharing of cultures like sourdough. A lot of people got into baking or sharing kombucha mothers, you know, and I think that's such a great way of building community um, and also fostering this sense of, like you said, self-reliance um sharing of of knowledge and of 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 tangible um things to really transform your foods um 
I know that you're a big fermenter at home. You had some sauerkraut with you as well. I have some, I dug into my fridge. I have like a whole separate fermentation fridge because I'm such a fermenting nerd. <laughs> my, my kids call it my stinky fridge, <laughs> but I've got some uh, sour. This one has like some chill. I actually, it's not quite kimchi, but I threw in some chili peppers and cabbage and carrots. Oh, so, that looks um, terrific. Yeah, yeah, it's super, it's super tasty. I love to throw this onto like, well, just about anything. There's something about like, and I, I wonder, I'm going to of it like the bacteria are calling to me when I feel like I'm getting depleted. Like I have to eat a bunch of kimchi or something today. And this is like a real Southern favorite of mine. We call these dilly beans. Have you oh, ever yeah. made dilly beans? It's like, so if you have green beans um, from your garden, we had a great uh, crop of green beans and I have garlic in there and some chilies from the garden. And, you know, I, I really learned about fermentation while I was doing field work, because as you said, like so many of us grew up in this kind of industrial food culture where it's so odd to like think about doing such a thing at home. Like you, I guess I got so used to just, you just buy your pickles in the vinegar soaked aisle. Or even know, pathologized and, and thought of as something that is a marker of poverty or something that is inherently unsafe because yeah. uh, any microorganism is inherently unsafe under a certain uh, way of looking at the world. Yeah. No, absolutely. And instead, I mean, microbes really have opened up so many aspects of food security and food sovereignty. And I, I know this is an area of interest for you. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, how, how does agrobiodiversity and kind of food sovereignty, where do those intersect? Uh, that's that's the question, um, because they are, in a sense, one and the same. Mm -hmm. Food sovereignty is this uh, fabulous idea um, that is a blend of praxis, action, uh, and scholarship that has really emerged as a kind of response to this new, unusual, weird thing that occurred over the last, let's say, 150 years um, especially with regard to seed breeding uh, and the distribution of plant genetic resources around the world. Now, throughout the colonial era, uh, folks with power and money, especially in colonial cores like Europe, had been, and later the United States, uh, had been doing a lot of moving plants around to the benefit of colonial powers and to often the detriment of communities uh, who were responsible for the outstanding plant genetic diversity in the first place. Uh, that accelerates with a kind of repackaging of Charles Darwin's ideas and rediscovery of, of him and, and Gregor Mendel's ideas, especially in the 1920s and 30s in the United States with the development of um, hybrid seeds. And hybrid, in this case, is a technical plant breeding term, meaning uh, a, a plant that's been back-crossed, that's been inbred uh, and crossed back with its, its parents or grandparents uh, such that it can perform really, really well under a set of very specific circumstances. And perform really well means here it can yield a lot of heavy product, uh, economic product, that you can then sell. Um, and that became a, a great standard for plant breeding companies. Because why in the world would you ever buy a seed if you were a farmer before this? Seeds reproduce themselves. It's a classic problem. Karl Marx, in his discussions of... Uh, who should own what and under what circumstances talked about agriculture a lot. And it, he didn't have really great um, solutions to a lot of the mm -hmm. agricultural problems because it's hard to get away from, well, the sun makes 
light and plants reproduce themselves. So uh, this is something um, that intersects with food sovereignty and food security when we start talking about the source of those plant genetic resources of seeds and of the food systems that are dependent on them. If there's no market for what you can grow and you have to make cash somehow, you're in a pretty tough spot as someone who relies on a rare food that might be culturally important. Uh, or the opposite can happen. If your culturally important food becomes suddenly really, really desirable, then you're selling it all out and uh, mm. you have a different relationship to the global food um, market, which is something that happened in the case of, say, quinoa in uh, South America. The ideas around food sovereignty are the, the straightforward version of the ideas around food sovereignty are, look, these are communities in place uh, around the world who can reproduce these important plant resources. They should be allowed to own them, market them, and have intellectual property rights on them as uh, are locally deemed important. Um, it's not too much more complicated than that, than that, but that's an incredibly radical idea uh, with respect to how plants are marketed uh, on the global scale and where uh, plant genetic resources go right now. Um, this intersects a little bit with some of the work that I do with respect to genetically modified foods, not because um, GMOs are necessarily like any technology, they're not inherently um, anti-democratic in that way or anti-local community in that way, but it's so expensive to create a genetically modified crop that really the only sure bets on them are these high value commodity crops. So if you mm. look at what GMOs are planted across the world, um, it's cotton, corn, soya, um, and canola. It's really those four on, on any kind of large scale commercially across the world. Those are not crops that we eat. So they're not really food for people. I mean, animals might eat them and we might make like food-ish stuff out of them, like Doritos. <laughs> or, or free lays project uh, products. I like I like that. I like the food. Foodish. It's like yeah, yes. they're, they're food adjacent. Um, they have calories. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, you know, you you can you can get stuff out of them, uh, but it's not what we usually think of as food, say in our grocery store or in our um, at least the outside of our grocery store or food mm -hmm. uh, in our refrigerator. Those GM products, because they're so expensive to uh, create because they're so uh, devoted to these high value commodity crops, um, generally they don't have a whole lot to do with food sovereignty because of that massive investment um, in where these products are going and who gets to decide what genes should be inserted or uh, manipulated in some way in how these actual things really get distributed out to farmers in their fields. Uh, which is that anthropological perspective. Lots of great possibilities, um, some of which are incredibly uh, pro-food sovereignty, but what actually gets out to farmers and how do they actually use it? It's in the growth of these um, export-driven commodity crops, which is not about keeping local plant genetic resources and intellectual property uh, within a community uh, who is allowed to decide how they use it as they see fit. So th these all of these things are, for me, interconnected in something like fermentation or agricultural, small-scale agrobiodiversity, because it's all about what you do and what your culturally driven tastes are. Mm -hmm. And that has this really profound, quantifiable impact on the biodiversity around us. 
Um, but what's fun is that we can't understand it if we don't look to see what cultural values are really driving them. So really these things, these two things are so uh, intricately linked and it's great to be able to prove that, to know this, not just on the level of a home garden or um, what people like yourself, I think the first time I ever saw this word, ethnozymology, the study yeah. of, um, of of home fermented foods. I think the first time I ever saw it was in a, one of your papers. Yeah, we um, coined, that's one of the words I made up. I coined you made the term. Up. Oh, yeah. it's fantastic. <laughs> well, it's, it's a hell of a word. No, it's a great, it's, it's exactly a great what we're getting at with yes. this. Um, I think you and Gary Nabin are the are the two voices who I've seen write about this before us. And, and your work yeah. was uh, inspirational in this, just in, in calling us to pay attention to um, how on every level, from the microbe up to the plant intellectual property rights uh, of a farmer who's planting grandma's seeds, because it's it's far more often women are the are the knowledge keepers of this than men. Um, all of those aspects are linked when we look at the culture and the resulting biology there. And we can't understand one without the other, which is what makes you know yeah. just sauerkraut so exciting. Yeah, there's so many layers to it. And and you're right, it's not just layers of chemistry and microbiology, but it's that deep, deep linguistic and cultural heritage um, that this, goes behind uh, it. I'm going to take a bite now of, of my sauerkraut. It wouldn't taste the way it does if I didn't have dill. And I wouldn't mm -hmm. put dill in this uh, if my Ashkenazi grandma didn't make her sauerkraut that way as well. So culture taste, heritage, uh, and, you know, recognition, citing my sources of grammar, yes. uh, all of that translates into the biological profile that I'm about to, you know, influence in my gut. That's so amazing. It looks delicious. Oh, <laughs> it's too bad we're doing this uh, on, on the internet. It'd be great <laughs> to, to share some food together. But this is, this has been fabulous. Um, and so enlightening. And I just want to thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing this really exciting research with us. It's been great. Uh, anyone listening, please feel free to write into me uh, for the paper. It's, it's open access. Um, for more on GMOs in India, uh, please feel free to check out um, this book, Cultivating Knowledge, which is also open access. Um, so look forward to chatting with you all later about that. Great. And can you tell them um, where can they find your website? So uh, look me up at andrewflax.com. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, um, and I like fermented foods. <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded on Skype. Um, I want to give a big shout out of thanks to the show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for pulling this together. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. You can find this and all of our other past episodes at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. Or um, you can also check out the video version of this podcast and others at the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.